Lisa Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime, Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us. We are so excited to have you. Every time you show up for us, we're just so excited. Your face, your ear holes, we feel so at home in your your cochlear perceptions. And we appreciate you guys for listening and being here and making us feel so at home. So at home. Like, I am so comfortable. It might be because I'm in my home, but <laughs> I feel at home. Thank you. And it's all because of you. And I'm pointing at the laptop. And you, Katie. Thank you. Yeah, of course. No problem. <laughs> but for real, thanks for listening. We got a juicy one for you today. Oh, my God. This one is packed bananas for sure. But I feel like a lot of the ones we talk about are packed. So nothing new. Mm. I I am definitely someone who is interested. You know, there's a lot of different categories of true crime. And we talk about this a lot. Serial killers are definitely a good fascination of mine. Obviously, that's probably like the main genre of true crime. But I do very interested in serial killers, especially ones Anything from, like, the 50s to, like, the now, I'm good with. You know, like, I want to learn about it. Before that, I'm like, I don't understand. What's a telegraph? You know, like, (laughs) silly stuff. But this case is pretty, it's pretty beefy. Like, there's a lot of victims, which is awful. But it's really interesting. So definitely stick around. Yeah. We actually, so this case was on our list because I was watching a season of American Horror Story And it was based in Provincetown. Mm -hmm. And they had a bunch of different references. They had the Vampire Panic. They had this guy that we're talking about today. Very briefly. But this guy was referenced because he's also nicknamed the Cape Cod Vampire. And we'll get into why. But it's pretty rare that a serial killer would be in New England. Yeah. And he's very violent. And we get into a lot of what he did with his victims. That's pretty shocking, honestly. And the fact that it happened in Cape Cod, too. Yeah. One of the places you would least suspect. That's a very big hot spot for vacation. Not only for New Englanders and locals, but a lot of people all over the country come to Cape Cod. Mm. So it's pretty scary to know that there was this serial killer. He was active for like three years, roughly. That's scary. Yeah, and he did a lot of damage in those three years. He sure did. He really did. Also, this case was suggested to us by Courtney G via our website submission tool. So thank you, Courtney. Thanks, Courtney. And Ava L is also now supporting us through Anchor. Ava L, thank you. One, I did not know that was a thing. Me either. So shows how much we like really look into the, <laughs> you know, but that's really sweet of you. Yeah. That was so much. So nice. And now that you guys know, you know about it. So do with that what you will. Apparently you can support us monthly or yeah through Anchor, which I, news to me, but apparently that's an option. And I think you choose how much you support. It's not like it's like $5. You just pick it. Like you put in, oh, I'll give them $75 a month. That's insane, guys. <laughs> Thank you. You guys are so good to us. <laughs> just kidding. But that is pretty, that's very nice of you, Ava. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It's people like you. That's why we we do this. 
and talk about the worst fucking things in the world. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Today is no different. No, it's pretty bad. We had a bad one last week. Mm-hmm. This one is equally terrible. So strap in. We're going to hell, essentially. And without further ado, today we will be covering Tony Costa. Katie, I beg you for your sources. I'm ready to give them to you. God bless. First and foremost, I've been waiting for this one. Wikipedia, baby. Amen. Followed closely behind by Murderpedia. Naturally. A and E. All that's interesting, which is always a 10 out of 10. Whenever I see that come up, I know it's going to be a good day. Absolutely. As well as the lineup. Oh, great. I, too, had our our friends at Wikipedia and Murderpedia, naturally. I also had All That's Interesting, which, again, best website. Great resource. Um, I had a Criminal Minds wiki fandom page because apparently he was mentioned in a Criminal Minds episode. So there's a whole page about his case. Just because he was mentioned in, like, one episode. Wow. Pretty awesome. Um, I also had an article from the grunge.com, which we also use frequently. Great website. Um, Cape Cod Times and the lineup. Hell yeah. Hell yes. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Tony Costa. Anton Costa, better known as Tony, was born on August 2nd, 1944 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was one of those kids who you can tell right off the bat is off. Hmm. Maybe something going on at home. Maybe something going on upstairs. Maybe a combination of both. But as a former pediatric psych nurse, I know the feeling when you're looking at a child and there's no soul (gasps) behind their eyes and there's just nothing there. Yeah. And the hair on the back of your neck stands up because it's a child in front of you and you immediately get a bad feeling. Yeah. He strikes me as one of those children. That's really unfortunate. He had a fascination with taxidermy, which, I mean, whoops, because (laughs) how many dead animals do I have in my apartment? But to be fair, ethically sourced people. And also, you're not the one doing the taxidermy. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That is a difference. And I'm not saying taxidermists are crazy, but like when you're four and doing it or whatever... Right. Yes. So you're fine. Thank you. Yours are ethically sourced. You don't go around picking up roadkill or whatever. Thank you. That you're totally fair. I don't go around as a, a wee child yeah. riding my bike around the neighborhood, loading my basket with roadkill. Ew. And only loading my basket with roadkill in the event that I'm not able to catch small animals, such as chipmunks or birds, to mutilate them alive. Oh my god. This little child would go creeping into the brush or the marsh and whatever woodsy area he could find Mm. and catch small animals to murder and graphically abuse. Disturbing. That blows my mind. A child. And I, it always makes me think like, I know I'm not a serial killer, obviously, because I've never killed anyone. But when I was younger... We had, like, in my first home, me and my brother were outside, and there was we had this big tote, and it was full of water and rain or whatever. And we found a mole, and we were like, oh, my God, we'll put him in the pool. And so we put him in the water, and he just never came back to the surface. And to this day, I still feel bad that I drowned a mole. It was not intentional. 
We thought he would have a little swim. It would be fun. <laughs> but we, he drowned because he couldn't swim because he's a mole. And I still, like, the amount of sadness I felt for so long after that. To me, obviously, everyone who listens to this knows I'm a wicked animal lover. You don't have to be an animal lover to know not to mutilate chipmunks. Right? Right. Or to feel empathy for another living creature. Right. That's exactly right. He's not feeling shit. No, he's seeking out live animals to make them suffer at his hand. Awful. And only when he is unable to catch prey will he go out and collect roadkill to dissect and play with. That's so, and as such a young child, too. That's what's crazy to me, is, and that's always the first red flag. Always. Always. When you hurt a small animal, an innocent creature, mm-hmm. there is no way you are going to stop at a chipmunk. You are going no. to keep escalating and keep elevating until you get to a person. That is a known fact. Absolutely. And Jeffrey Dahmer is the perfect example of that. Yep. Do you know how many kids I took care of at the psych hospital that had a history of hurting small animals or doing shit like that? I'm sure that's very scary to know you're taking care of like a child like that and know the potential they have to become someone like him, like Tony Costa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He also had a really complex and rocky relationship with his mom, which I mean, moms are complicated, family stuff's complicated, but this level of a relationship Keeping in mind what he does to his victims, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, one of those lovely geniuses, evaluated this case after the fact and said the manner in which Tony mutilated his victims was very personal and very much so like he wished he could inflict harm on this woman. Mm -hmm. He wishes that he could take that and hurt his mom in that way. Right, right. He's lashing out at women because of this relationship with his mother which is also very typical of a lot of serial killers Mm -hmm. comes to mind ed kemper who actually ended up murdering his mom but he she was one of his very last victims he killed her and one of her friends but he had killed many before that and i think that's a good he was like wanting to do it to her right very pent up rage yep Mm -hmm. yep very typical so that's interesting and scary what we know now like imagine being a, like, if I was a mom and my kid would dissect, I'd be like, oh my God. Psych ward, you go. Yep. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Go get treatment. Sorry. Yeah, seriously. Like, you were going to be on Lexapro and Haldol. <laughs> like, you were going to be so. Because that's. There's a reason why those are associated with serial killers or even just a murderer. Right. And it's really scary when a child has an innate urge to hurt something because even if that's the kid's urge, most of the time, it's not like they're watching their mother go out and hunt the chipmunk and dissect it in front of them and they repeat that behavior. That's all them. Yeah. Which is all the more terrifying because it's not a learned behavior. It's something that is inside of them that's telling them to do this. Yeah. Scary. It makes you think, like, I'm not even a parent. And I'm like, I better fix my parenting. Like, I got to be <laughs> careful. You know, because it's... It's just really scary. And, you know, after years and years of people and the FBI dissecting, no pun intended, uh, serial killers in the mind of a psychopath and things like that, there's a reason why those are associated mutilating animals, head injuries, wetting the bed after, like, an appropriate age, fire setting. That's a pretty typical indication that that would lead to something 
negative and it's because there's evidence behind it. Mm-hmm. Which is scary. So scary. Does that mean that if you're a listener and you peed the bed until you were nine, does that mean you're a killer? No. No. <laughs> right. It's just the combination of certain red flags to make a huge, giant, waving, bright red banner. Yeah. That's more so what <laughs> we're talking right. about. Yes. And then also, like, home life factors. And like you said, he had a very rock relationship with his mom. That absolutely will do stuff. And his mm. dad died in World War II when he was an infant. Didn't have a appropriate father figure, it sounds like, ever. I don't think he ever ended up having one. So that throws a wrench in things for sure. And that's not to say that if you have shitty parents, you're going to become a murderer. I'm not saying that. People who have normal parents become murderers, you know. So it's just very interesting, the dynamic and who ends up what and, you know. We could do a whole separate podcast on (laughs) the mind of a serial killer. Yes, or just even people with psychotic problems. Especially you, because you saw it firsthand. And children. And wee babies. Yeah. Tony started his life of crime towards people at the ripe age of 17, just 17, when he broke into an apartment in Somerville, Massachusetts, and was found standing over the bed of a teenage girl watching her sleep. So creepy. She woke up, and her blood-curdling scream scared him off, and he ran away. Three days later, he came back to the same apartment, broke in, and his intention this time was to attack the girl. Yeah. Whether it was to kill her completely, unknown. But he definitely wanted to get his hands on her. He tried dragging her down the stairs in an effort to get her outside and away from people. He was caught when neighbors heard the commotion and they had to tackle him to the ground to get him to stop and to get him away from this girl. Yeah. He was convicted on burglary and assault charges in November of 1962, and he was charged with three years of probation. Which is not nearly enough. Mm -mm. And especially back then, it wasn't until, I don't know, of course, the time exactly, but it wasn't until more recently that rape was even considered a felony or like a serious charge. So the simple act of, and I say that very lightly, of like, assault back then you would get a sentence of probation like that you wouldn't go to jail right because you it's not you didn't kill anyone so it's insane and he's 17 and uh but don't worry guys because at 18 though he turns his life around and marries a 14 year old and um yes 18 14 like that is four years but 18 and 14. It'd be different if he was 30 and she was 26. Completely. No, no. She was a baby. And they immediately had four children. Soon after they were married, though, Tony began to abuse drugs, including marijuana, which isn't, you know, I'm including it in the list, but we know today probably not a huge deal. But he also did LSD and Dilaudid, which is a pretty strong painkiller. Like I give that to um, my moms who had C-sections, you know, major abdominal surgery. It's a big, it knocks them out. Like it feels good, you know? So he was abusing that. um, And this led to really bizarre behavior. um, And then that kind of ended his marriage pretty swiftly. And it was around this time too, that he started using drugs and acting weird that his mom died, which 
like you said, their relationship was so weird that obviously, like it affected him. And, you know, maybe for whatever reason, he was angry that she died or he was happy, you know, all this stuff factoring in that he just started acting even more bizarre. Yes. And also did not help that he was high most of the time. LSD is not something to be taken lightly. No. Taken literally or metaphorically discussed. That's that shit's hardcore. Just don't do LSD, <laughs> please. And don't do dilaudid either. That's stuff no recreationally, of course. That stuff is if you are one of my patients who had a C section and you are due for dilaudid, that is fine. Oh shit, yeah. If, if you're taking that with a prescription, fine. You fucking need that shit. Absolutely. If you're taking it to have fun. First of all, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Go get help. Yes. Maybe don't take it with other drugs, such as LSD, because Tony, who already was not okay upstairs, as sure. we well established, yep. he turned into essentially a violent asshole. Yeah. He was not kind to his young wife. He was not kind to the many children running around. He would have outbursts of anger. I'm sure he inflicted many a punch or many a physical abuse on especially his wife. Oh, yeah. But he would get high and he would not be fully present and he would act out and have fits of rage, which if that's a side effect of recreational drugs, you need to not be taking those drugs. Exactly. That's like certain people, how they avoid certain kinds of alcohol because of a side effect. Like, oh, I've had someone tell me dark liquor makes me aggressive, so right. I don't drink it. Okay, right. good call. Mm-hmm. Recognize that. Prevent Perfect. something from happening. Yeah. Great. You know that about yourself. Mm-hmm. If you know that you love to get high off of LSD and it turns you into a violent person and you continue doing it, mm-hmm. bad. Pretty bad. Doesn't seem like he cared. Precisely. So that's the unfortunate part. Which can happen, too, because it sounds like he was addicted to drugs, and that's unfortunate. And, um, you know, when you are addicted to drugs, whether it be LSD or whatever, and I'm not giving him excuses, but that is hard to stop, mm. even if you know it makes you this, even if you know that you're going to lose custody of your kids, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure he was aware, and just at that point, he needed the drugs more than he cared. Indeed. Yeah. Pretty typical of addiction anyway. Um, but he's an extreme case because of what he ends up doing. Speaking of what he ends up doing, why don't we get into that? Because it's a long list. Indeed. Mm. So let's start off in June of 1966. So, so long ago, feels like. For whatever reason, you know, he's living in Massachusetts. Whatever reason, he's like, I'm heading to California, baby. And... Maybe it was to escape his failing marriage and, you know, all the children, and he didn't want that responsibility. Maybe the drug scene was better out there. Whatever reason. You know, during this time, he brought home two young uh, girls who, he, you know, are described as being, like, hippie, which is pretty, you know, of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, and he claimed he was going to take them to Pennsylvania on his way to California. Interesting route, but yes, fine, great. And this was, you know, 60s. People are hitchhiking all the time, whatever, to get across the country. They'll do whatever they need to. They didn't know. Um, These women, their names were Bonnie Williams and Diane Federhoff. So 10 days later, after he leaves for California, Tony comes home. And he doesn't have the two girls, which was expected because he was going to drop them off. And 
later he's asked about these girls because they never made it to the destination they were planning on and were known to be going to. And so he was asked about it and he was like, what do you mean? I dropped them off where they wanted to be. And I moved on. I went to California. It was fun. I had corn dogs on the beach, whatever. (laughs) And that was it. And they were like, wow. Okay. So see ya. Yeah. Sounds good, man. Cool. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for, fa- I know this was annoying. Huh? I'm sorry we had to bother you. Like what? I made that part up just then. I don't know if he ate corn dogs on the beach, but probably right. Did corn dogs exist in the sixties? Somebody check that we need to, this is why we need an assistant so they can find <laughs> out in real time. Where's my Stephen Ray Morris? When you need him. <laughs> um, but regardless, he was the last one to be seen with them. And I'll tell you guys right now, they have never been seen again now in 2023. So do with that what you will. Next, in August of 1967, um, so a little over a year after those two women went missing, Tony and this woman, he just like a friend, um, it's unsure of their the status of their relationship. As far as I could tell, they're just like acquaintances. They were hiking in the Truro Woods, which were near Provincetown. And all of a sudden, he just shot her with an arrow. She's, she's fine. She survived. She, like, it was a minor wound, but she was like, what? Hello? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, oh, it's an accident. Which, you know, I have, ac- you know, we all have things that we accidentally do. Like, I drop, I dropped a gummy on my way home from work today. You know, I was eating on the way home in my car. Oh, that boohoo. I don't accidentally shoot someone with an arrow. Like, how do you just, you have to load that shit. And you have and to aim, aim it, too. You have to be really pro- i mean it sounds like he was a great marksman but jesus christ you have to line that up take a step back in. right line up your vision and really visualize mm-hmm. and all this and the right amount of pressure and force on the arrow and yeah hello it's a little suspicious so tony costa was known as the hippie type which, I mean, mid to late 60s, this is a time frame for it. Sure. Smoking weed, doing LSD, just kind of driving around the country, no responsibilities. That was pretty common for people of his group at that sure. time. No hippies. hippies. And yeah. so he tended to find other people who were hippies. And that's what would happen is they would help each other out. Sure. Hitchhiking and getting people where they needed to be and maybe taking a break and smoking some weed and... Love and life in the back of a Volkswagen van. Right. Fun. Sweet deal. Great. He made his way back to California in that same year of the Arrow incident, <laughs> in 67. He would just kind of drift around and bounce around back to California to Massachusetts and vice versa. He had a girlfriend at this time when he was living in California. Mm-hmm. Her name was Barbara Spaulding. Tony was set to leave California to return back to Massachusetts. And that very same day, he was leaving California conveniently Mm. to go across the country. Yeah, all the way across. She disappeared. Mm, That's a little weird. Pretty convenient timing. She, yeah, she dropped her kid off with her family member and then was like, okay, I'll be back. And then did not come back. And then he left the state. In the coast. We don't know where she is either, by the way. Yeah, she's never been seen again. They they believe, you know, because he... Because she never came back to get her kid, who reportedly, you know, she loved very much, and it was like, 
you know, she cared for and all that and would never leave. She just never came back. And so the police net like later on are like, think he had something to do with it. Mm. Lines up kind of, again, nicely isn't the right word, but it fits pretty perfectly. In May of 1968, which wasn't too long after he came back to Massachusetts after Barbara went missing, Tony burglarized a doctor's office and stole over $5,000 worth of surgical equipment, red flag, and prescription drugs, red flag. First of all, and I didn't realize this until you pointed it out to me, Katie, the surgical instruments in his history of dissection and stuff totally checks out. He loved to mutilate and cut things open and look at the insides and play around with organs and body parts and cut things apart. And yeah, yeah. the fact that he's now stealing surgical instruments, which are for people. I mean, it's not like he robbed a veterinarian's office and took dog and cat sized tools. Now he's escalating and he's robbing a doctor's office for people. Yeah. And taking people-sized surgical tools, That's a good which point. are used to cut open people. Oh, people. Yeah. Yeah. This is not looking too good here. No. And it continues to not look good. And still in May of 1968, an 18-year-old girl who was named Sydney Monson disappears from her Provincetown home in Massachusetts. She was last seen. You probably guessed it. Getting into a car with none other than our friend, Tony Costa. Oh, Tone Bone. It's so wild how all these girls he's last seen with are just vanishing into thin air. I bet it's just a weird coincidence. So crazy. It's pretty sad because she wasn't reported missing until June 14th, which was give or take a month after she went missing. So that's really sad. And I'm not sure what the reason is for that. Maybe she was a, a runaway or a vulnerable population living in a poor social situation, whatever it may be. It was a month before she was reported missing, which, as we talked about, critical time. Police actually later looking back on this case with, you know, knowing what we know now, Mm -hmm. it's theorized that actually a lot of Tony's victims weren't reported missing until later. The exceptions being two ladies we'll talk about later on and the woman, his former girlfriend in California with the child she was responsible for. Right. A lot of people think it might be just because of the culture at the time. You know, these kids are considered hippies, so Mm -hmm. they have a lax way of life and... You know, it wasn't uncommon for some of these women that Tony was affiliated with to go with no contact for a while and then come back and be like, oh, I went down to the beach a couple states away and smoked some weed and slept out under the stars. And, you know, a lot of these people lived a lifestyle where Mm -hmm. they weren't constantly in contact. So a lot of times their parents or people who loved them and were close to them just kind of assumed, oh, they're living life and they'll come back in a day or a week or a month. Yeah. And then as time started to go on, they're thinking, oh, shit. Yeah. We haven't heard from them. They missed this birthday. They missed Christmas. They all, they love whatever this, she left her kid and that's not like her, you know? Yeah. Right. And it also was awful because hitchhiking culture and the culture of the time where you would leave your doors unlocked and you would stick your thumb out and get into the first car that was able to stop and pick you up. And you didn't think that anything bad could happen to you or a loved one. So that's not your first thought. I mean, today, if a child doesn't come home from school and they're 15 minutes late, you're calling and you're figuring out what's going on. 
back then that was not the mindset, especially if, you know, hippies and laid back and getting into a Volkswagen and cruising around. That wasn't where people's heads were at. No. So that really caused a huge delay in investigation and finding the victims. hundred percent. Very well said. Just several months after Sydney's disappearance in September of that same year, 1968, Tony's new girlfriend, Susan Perry, also vanished into thin air. Say what? <laughs> and you know, what's really weird is he wastes no time. In August, his divorce was finalized. Literally, like less than a week later, this woman, Susan Perry, who was 18, moved into his apartment or house, whatever. In less than a week, like literally a week later, September 10th, she vanished. You can wait a little longer because this is the second, like, you know, he is last seen with that girl and she's gone. He has those two women. He helps hitchhike and within 10 days they're missing. Take some time. <laughs> right. And this whole span, you guys, is over the course of three years. Yeah. So he really, he's not slowing down. He is escalating, if anything, very fast. Susan's friends confronted Tony and they're like, hey, we haven't heard from Suze and we're getting a little worried. It's not really like her to just vanish for this long, you know? She kind of lives her own life, but we talk to her. We're her yeah. friends. Yeah. Do you, did she tell you where she could have gone? Because, mm. yeah, actually, she did. She said that she's going to Mexico. Oh, Mexico. Sue loves Mexico. <laughs> she's always talking. Like, he just clearly picked a country out of his ass. <laughs> Come on. And back then, you know, there it's phones aren't something like obviously they don't have cell phones it takes 19 years to get a letter in the mail <laughs> and also how are they going to get send her a letter they don't know where she is you know right so may and maybe they did buy it for a little while because that was that hippie lifestyle but like you've been saying after a little while people are like okay what's going on right and tony too he lived kind of a double life. Mm -hmm. So we see the side of him where he's on LSD and he's burglarizing a doctor's office and taking prescription medication and surgical tools and women are vanishing left, right, and center. He sees a woman and then poof, she's gone. Basically. Literally. I mean, it might as well be. It's eye contact, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but in the eyes of law enforcement, they weren't putting two and two together, partly because they weren't considering a lot of these victims as true missing persons until it was way too late. Yeah. And also Tony was kind of buddy, buddy with the police. Yikes. He, worked as an informant for them, kind of. Oh. He would let them know, hey, I saw someone dealing drugs on the street corner. Go get them. And they'd be like, oh, Tony, you're the best. Thank you so much, man. It's really great to have insider information from a member of the community. Jesus Thanks great. to you, you're keeping the community safe. I did not know that he was an informant. Yep. So Shit. he kind of got a break. Yep. And in the eyes of law enforcement, they're thinking, it can't be our buddy Tony. He's the one that helped us put so-and-so behind bars for doing this crime. And so Tony was also using that to his advantage. That's pretty smart. And he used his kind of in with the police to keep track of their investigation into his victims uh, because he was thinking, you know, they'll tell me or mm -hmm. cops love to gossip. So I can overhear what they're saying about this next girl that's gone missing. Right. So that right. was also fueling what he was doing mm -hmm. because he knew the cops didn't know shit. 
or they had the bare minimum, or they yeah. were just realizing that his victim, three victims ago, yeah. is now on their radar. Right. So this is only fueling and encouraging him. Him. Oh, 100%. Mm. And even that being said, he has a history, like a you know criminal history. Of course, that's usually how you become an informant. But even like in the middle of his murdering that we now know, um, he was getting arrested for other things. In September, the end of September, he was arrested for driving on a suspended license. And that was like literally like a week or two after Susan went missing. So he's getting arrested for other things, which is gutsy. And then on the 25th of September, which is a week after he was arrested for the suspended license, he was arrested again for failing to, quote, support his wife and children and was held in jail until November 8th. And I was confused about this because he was divorced at this point. So why would he have, he didn't have a wife. Like, why would he have to, maybe they worded it weird for like child support. Oh, but I was could like, be. weird. I guess he's still obviously responsible for the children, but weird. After his release from jail due to the child support thing, he began hanging out with a woman named Christine Gallant. And it's not, I'm not sure if they had a romantic involvement or if they were just friends, whatever. They like to do drugs together is the only thing that I can confirm. And she had an apartment in New York and he would go there and they would do drugs together. And then on November 25th of 1968, so not too long, like three weeks, not even after he got out of jail, this may not be related at all, but Christine was found dead in her apartment. She had drowned in her bathtub. Uh, there was no sign of trauma, and the autopsy determined she had overdosed on barbiturates. Technically speaking, Tony has never been tied to her death or officially, you know, a suspect or anything. They ruled her death as an accidental overdose. But a lot of people think maybe he's connected just because of the drugs. And he was hanging out with her a lot. And that's a pretty fast timeline from when they began hanging out to when she died. Typical of his MO. So to this day, it's never been confirmed. Her death is still considered an overdose, but it's pretty suspicious. Hmm. So, and unfortunately, it doesn't end there. No. No, 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 On January 24th, 1969, two women, Patricia Walsh and Mary Ann Wysocki, they're both 23 years old. They were up visiting Provincetown and they had just arrived at their guest house. Amazing. They had driven up from Rhode Island in Patricia's beautiful blue Volkswagen. Classic 60s. I was going to say, very fitting. Ugh. The owner of the guest house they were staying in ever so kindly introduced them to a young man also staying in a room at the house. Cute. A young man by the name of Tony Costa. He sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> the morning after Patricia and Mary Ann arrived to Provincetown, mm -hmm. they went missing. Yeah, that's weird. Both of the girls had appointments they had scheduled, and both of them did not show up to these appointments, which is not like them. Mm -hmm. The owner of the guest house found a note taped to their bedroom door that stated, Could you possibly give me a ride to Truro early in the morning? Tony. Oh, tone bone. <laughs> the girls were last seen getting into their blue Volkswagen with Tony headed in the direction of Truro. Yes. And it's, it's interesting because when Tony got in the car, one of the girls was driving a presumably Patricia, because it was her car. Um, and then he was in the passenger seat, and then Marianne was in the back, potentially. Or it could be vice versa. But they were all in the car together. And they were driving, and I guess it was, like, at a stoplight and whatever. And he 
was seen by his friend, Zacharias, which one is the best name ever. But Zacharias like approached the car because he was called over by Tony and um, they talked for a few seconds and Zacharias um, gave Tony a check because they had a mutual employer and he had it on him. And so he was like, Oh, here's your check. And it was like, great. Okay, cool. And so Zacharias did clock that there was two women in the car and one was driving and one was in the back. And after they stopped talking, uh, the car drove off in the direction of Truro. So, so far it lines up with the nope he left like, Hey, I need a ride. Okay, not suspicious. The girls aren't suspicious. Okay, fine. And then, you know, you'd mentioned they had appointments scheduled because that's why they were up in, you know, Provincetown, whatever. And then neither of them showed up. And this was January 25th. On January 26th, just two days after the girls had gotten there, the owner of the guest house found another note on the girl's door that Mm -hmm. said, We are checking out. Thank you for your many kindnesses. And it was signed, Mary Ann and Pat. Fine. Great. So nice of them. The only thing with this is that this second note was written on the same exact paper as the other note from the day before with the same exact handwriting. Oh. And if you recall, the first note was signed, Tony. Tony. So why would the girls... Right, in the same exact handwriting and the same exact paper as the first note from Tony. Hmm. It doesn't... No. Clearly no. Yeah. Like, what are the chances they were like, can we borrow? Do you have... Yeah, can you write this for us, actually? Right. And tape it on our door while we go gallivanting and miss our appointments? Weird. I I don't fucking think so. Nope. The girls' belongings had also been taken out of their room. Which would check out if that if they left, right? Okay. Until uh, like it was found in the room, but that's that's a weird coincidence. It, sometimes bags are known to like get up and move. <laughs> you know, personal belongings tend to drift into other people's. Like what? Okay, buddy. And it just keeps getting more suspicious. Three days later, so it's January 29th now. The girls have supposedly checked out. Tony went to like a local gas station and he asked the owner a super weird out of left field question. How much would it cost to paint a Volkswagen like an exotic color? And I don't know what the man, you know, the gas station owner responded with it. They never, there was no, um, nothing came of that inquiry, but I wonder what he would how you would react to that be like an exotic an exotic color first of all when do you have a volkswagen like i know you why do you have a an, an exotic weird red flag number 96 <laughs> on sunday february 2nd it had been a week since the girls disappeared it's claimed that a witness saw the light blue volkswagen which belonged to patricia it was parked roughly 30 feet into the woods in truro and the like the guy got out and was like started to approach the car and he got like the heebie-jeebies and got back in his car and was like nope and he came back with a police officer and when they got back it was weird because he hadn't been gone very long and he got close enough to the car to see enough and noticed that when he came back with the police officer there was now a note on the car and he was like that was not there before and it basically said that the car was there due to quote mechanical trouble 
Unfortunately, the car was not listed as stolen because, well, now we know that the people who owned it were dead. The police didn't, there was no report filed. So they were like, oh, it's somebody's car. It's not stolen. So they just left it. True story. (laughs) Not my problem. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Shortly after the car was found, it made its way to Boston. Oh! With Tony in the driver's seat. Tones. Huh. Huh. What? That's so wild. That is crazy. He and this this Volkswagen just keep appearing together. (laughs) What Tony did not take into account, though, is that where he left Patricia's car led police Mm. right to where they needed to be searching. Right. Right. It was like, he called it his garden. His secret garden. And that's not the first time we've talked about a serial killer who refers to his dumping grounds as his garden. I believe it was William Devin Howell uh, in Connecticut who did that behind a strip mall. And he killed seven women, I think. And he, yep, he buried them in that same spot. And that was his, his secret garden. His place. Same thing with Tony Costa. Yeah, creepy. Only his garden had another secret element to it. So we know he loved drugs. We also know he was an informant of some kind for the police. Mm -hmm. Tony's secret garden served not just for bodies, but for his personal stash of marijuana. The Mary Jane. He was a little bit of a bud tender. You know, just loved to grow different strains and experiment and flowers, <laughs> spleefs and whatnot. He had his own secret garden of marijuana. So police had gotten word of this. Mm. So they know where the car was and they know they should be looking for tall stalks of plants that don't normally grow native to the area. Right. And also are marijuana. <laughs> Which back then, well, I mean, I guess I can't, I can't say for sure because it is the 60s and marijuana and LSD were like, yeah, but I don't think it was legal to just grow marijuana. No. Back then either. Maybe I'm wrong. People who were knowledgeable in that let me know. But yeah, they were like, oh, marijuana, that's weird. And they were looking at it and they were like, there's a patch of like freshly dug up dirt here. But there's no marijuana over the dirt. <laughs> so what is happening? And that is when it kind of all started to unravel. A scary, scary scene and a scary truth came to light. On February 8th, 1969, while police were looking for the bodies of Patricia and Marianne, they found, like you said, Liz, a fresh patch of soil with a dent in it. Mm-mm as if the soil had been dug up and then fresh soil had been placed on top. Don't like that. Police dug into the area and they pulled out a bag. And this bag, upon closer inspection, revealed to be full of body parts. Eight separate parts, to be exact. Eight. These body parts did not belong to Patricia or Marianne. They belonged to Tony's girlfriend, Susan, who... We all thought was in Mexico. She loves Mexico. (laughs) At least that's what Tony said. Why is she dead? Right. Why are eight pieces of her in a bag underneath your weed plants? Literally. When she should be getting a tan on in Mexico. Absolutely. Weird. 
So like you said, Katie, Tony took a little trip to Boston with his buddies. They took that Volkswagen. He told his friends, hey, these two girls from Canada sold it to me. And then they went back to Canada or whatever. Um, and they were like, great, cool, cool. That's, oh, yeah, man, drugs, whatever. He actually tried registering the car in his name in Burlington, Vermont, and that didn't work out so well. But two days after they found Susan's body, they found the Volkswagen Beetle, right? It was in Vermont, and it was actually in a parking space that was like a prepaid reserve parking spot. And the name on the file of the reserved parking spot was Tony Costa. What? And so they were like, yo, this is all very weird. And then they kept digging that garden. And they kept digging it. And they, it took 25 days after Susan's body was found. But they did not give up. And um, March 5th, 1969, the investigators found two shallow graves, same garden, where they made another horrifying discovery. Mary Ann Wysocki's body was essentially split between those two shallow graves. Mm -hmm. Her torso and head had been buried separately, and they found her about a mile and a half from where Susan's remains were found in a bag. Mm. In a separate grave, pretty close to where Mary Ann's body had been found, Patricia Walsh was found. She had been cut in half at the waist, and her skin was peeled open off of her chest up to her shoulders. Yeah. So that the muscle and the insides, basically, of her chest were exposed. Yeah. When they removed Patricia's body... They found more remains, and these were determined to be from 18-year-old Sidney Monzen, who had been missing for almost a year. Yeah. All three women had been significantly dismembered. There were also several bite marks found across various body parts, and these bite marks are why Tony Costa is nicknamed the Cape Cod Vampire. Mm -hmm. Checks out. Uh, Of course, they brought these bodies to the medical examiner. And if you think of it, like you said, Sydney had been missing for almost a year and Susan, Marianne and Patricia all happened after that. So he was moving very quickly. So I can't imagine their bodies were super, super decomposed. So they brought them into the medical examiners. And again, you know, it's 1969. So we know a lot more now, but still there's definitely enough information and knowledge back then to be like what happened and stuff. So um, according to the medical examiner, it looked as though, like you said, the skin was peeled off of both girls. And he described it as, um, he said it was peeled off their chest in a fashion like a sweater so that it was attached only about the shoulders. Which I can't really picture in my mind's eye. The way you said it made more sense to me. Regardless. Holy shit. That's messed up. And that requires a lot of precise, sharp tools. Hey! Perhaps like those stolen surgical instruments. Interesting. Connection, Katie. Very interesting. According to the medical examiner as well, um, it's... He discovered ultimately that Tony didn't stop brutalizing them after they had died. He continued to do a lot of things. 
stab wounds that were clearly post-mortem were found on Mary Ann. They were located into the entire thickness of her chest wall, as well as big slashes across her buttocks that went as deep as the underlying muscles and tissue. That's deep. Do you know how hard and with how much force that requires? A ton. Wow. More than you'd think. Especially muscles. The medical examiner determined that both women had been sexually assaulted. Unsure if it was before or after. I have a feeling maybe it was both. Because he clearly was okay with, like, necrophilic kind of actions. Absolutely. Um, He also determined that Patricia had died of a gunshot wound to her neck. And Marianne had died from a gunshot wound in her brain, which actually started from the left side of her head. And that actually... That was the one that killed her, but she had been shot a second time, whether that was before or after the one that killed her, also in the head. Ironically, and by ironic, I mean this guy was so dumb, his twenty-two caliber gun was found buried, like, nearby with the bodies, and it matched the, you know, the bullet wounds. And then, of course, like you said, Katie, the bodies also had bite marks on them, which earned him the name the Cape Cod Vampire, like he said. District Attorney Edmund Dennis stated each body was cut into as many parts as there are joints. That makes me so incredibly uncomfortable. That's awful. Like, thinking about the human body and that statement. Mm -hmm. Like, we have a pretty good knowledge of the human body and, like, joints and stuff. But you don't have to have that to picture that in your mind's eye and be like, I'm sorry, what now? Just the sheer brutality and the extent that he went to with mutilating these women. Mm -hmm. And it's not like it was personal towards each victim because he had not known them all that long. Not at all. Right. I mean, Patricia and Marianne, they went missing the next day. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. He, it's not a personal attack towards each woman. Mm-hmm. It's more so he is just such a disturbed individual. So that same day, Tony Costa was arrested. It was March 5th, 1969. The same day they were found, Patricia and Marianne. And he was in custody and he denied, naturally, any involvement. He was like, no way! He changed his story a whole bunch. He failed a whole bunch of polygraph tests. Yes, we know now that polygraphs are kind of junk science, but back then they relied on them a lot. Um, he even tried to implicate some of his friends. He was like, no, uh, Joe, totally, he should check him out. And I'm sure later they were like, what the fuck, man? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, and then he went through a psychiatric exam uh, to try and, you know, determine what was wrong with him. It was determined that he had a schizoid uh, personality. And then a few months later, a second psychiatrist examined him and determined him to be a, quote, sexually dangerous man who was, quote, indeed capable of murder. And this was all before the trial. So they were, the defense was like, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) Shit. Shit. We were going to go with the insanity thing. Right. Yeah, no, that was thrown out the window. (laughs) Tony was arraigned on June 12th, 1969 for murder charges for three of the deaths. After his arraignment, Tony was telling police that there was a maniac on the loose killing women. Whoa! 
Rest assured, Tony, <laughs> the maniac is off the streets <laughs> and in this very room. Oh, hey, thank God. Is the maniac in the room with us now? <laughs> Do you see him right now? Where is he? Let me hold up a mirror and we can... <laughs> Come on. So wow. On July 12th, of 1969, not too long after he was in custody um, and had, you know, said that there was a maniac on the loose, he actually admitted to the murder of Marianne Wysocki, but only Marianne Wysocki. And I just wonder why her specifically, why not Patricia? Why not just Sydney? Very interesting choice. And then his trial began on May 6th of 1970. And as we know, and we've talked about Many times, and it happens a lot, his lawyers were like, he is so insane, guys. He's not criminally, you know, he's not criminally responsible. He's insane. You know, they argued that he was a heavy drug user, which was true. In that quote, it hampered his rational thinking. Also probably true. But when he was six and he was mutilating chipmunks, he wasn't on LSD then. I don't think it even existed. So. And also by that logic. Every person with a drug habit or a drug problem mm -hmm. would be out mutilating and killing people left, right, and center. And that's not the case. No. Most people with a drug problem, like, it's an addiction. Addiction is a disease. It's awful. It doesn't cause you to go around and be a serial killer. No. That no. was in him from probably the womb. Mm-hmm. At the very end of his trial before he was convicted... You know, he had been saying, I'm, I'm so insane. Here's some proof that I'm insane. Insanity. I don't know what I'm doing. And then he got up because they're allowed to give a statement at the end of the trial. And he gave, he gave the most intelligent and rational speech. And then all of the jury was like, you're not insane. That was very well said, very well worded. <laughs> if you were insane, you wouldn't be able to Maybe even if you didn't, like, write that speech, someone wrote it for you, you wouldn't be able to articulate it so nicely and sound so, you know, rational. So they were like, what the, what? No, you idiot. <laughs> Maybe you would have had it if you didn't give that beautiful speech. Right. <laughs> Dumb. On May 29th, 1970, Tony Costa was convicted for the murders of Mary Ann Wysocki and Patricia Walsh. He was sentenced to life in prison at the Massachusetts Walpole Correctional Institution at just 24 years old. Wow. He did a lot of damage so young. Right. Three years. I mean, and the bodies that are found, that's all that we know are from him. Yes. How many women did we talk about that he was last seen with them and now we have no idea decades later where they are? Three technically speaking, and then the fourth woman who died of an overdose, who maybe is tied, but three that we can definitively say he was the last one to see them. Right. And over the span of three years, how, how do you make eight women, at least seven, potentially eight yeah. women disappear and or be found murdered, right? Or at least deceased for the eighth one that yes. passed away in the bathtub that we aren't sure of his connection 100%, but right. we can speculate. Yeah. Appropriately, I think. In his own words and delusion, Tony described the murders in his novel. Don't worry, it was never published. It was <laughs> it was never this is a exclusive <laughs> read. It's called Resurrection. Mm. He wrote it while he was in prison. Of course. You know, gotta kill time somehow. Yeah, sure. 
Tony said that he and a friend named Corey were out hanging out with Patricia and Marianne, and the four of them were getting high off of LSD and Dilaudid. Okay. Tony said Corey, in a fit of LSD, high and rage, shot Marianne and Patricia. Huh. Tony said that he was able to get Corey to calm down. Stop shooting. Just calm down, Corey. Look at me. Look at me, Corey. Stop shooting. Everything's going to be okay. And it worked. <laughs> and it worked. And Tony said, you know, because he's such a good person, mm-hmm. he checked on Patricia. She was dead. Yeah. And then he checked on Mary and realized she was still alive. So he had to use a knife to put her out of her misery and end her suffering. Tony and Corey then buried the bodies. Sure. He conveniently leaves out that they were found in pieces. I was out of sympathy. There's no justifying that. How are you putting someone out of their misery if you're stabbing and slashing them in their buttocks? Right. Through the muscle. I I mean, doesn't really quite add up. Yeah. The book also goes on to say that the deaths of Susan Perry and Sidney Monson, who were... Susan was found in... The bag, yeah. as awful as that is, mm-hmm. and Sydney was found buried underneath Patricia. Right. He said that those two women died of drug overdoses. Oh, and then they cut themselves up. <laughs> okay. He also said it was his alter ego, Carl, who's the one who dismembered and then buried all of their bodies. Carl. That's, like, w- that's scoundrel. Tony said he claims he has no knowledge of anything that happened until after the women died, when he came to and realized what his alter ego Carl had done. You gotta be fucking kidding me. You can't make this shit up. Like, so first you're not taking any responsibility for their dismembering. Right. And then a couple paragraphs later, a couple chapters later in the book, right? your alter ego Carl is the one who is dissecting and mutilating these bodies. Something you've done your whole life. Thank you. Was it Carl at the ripe age of seven when you were catching and baiting live animals to then cut open and cut apart and yeah. torture? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, he thought he was doing something clever. <laughs> and it was, it was quote, a factual novel. Like, are you dumb? <laughs> this, well, yes, we know he's dumb. He's dumber than, holy shit. Him and Carl need to fix themselves. <laughs> and it sounds like he just picked the first name he could think of. Carl! Right. Meanwhile, the inmate he sits across the lunch table from is named Carl. Like His name's Carl Corey, actually. <laughs> He's my, my uncle. <laughs> just kidding. But, like, so simple and not believable. No. No. Unfortunately, on May 12th of 1974... It's around 8 in the morning. A correctional officer finds Tony hanging from his cell by a leather belt. He was only 29 years old. He had served just almost exactly four years in jail of a life sentence. Just four years for taking at least seven lives. Pussy. Right. Coward. And he was only serving time for two. Yes. Absolute coward. That's, if that doesn't scream guilt, I don't know what does. Right. And it makes me so mad because, you know, we have four bodies. We have those other women who have never been seen after being seen with him. Right. 
and I bet you he knows what happened to those women. And he took it to the grave with him. Yes. Him and Carl, they know. (laughs) You're right. And they'll, I mean, it's been so many years. 66 was when it happened. So it's been 55 years, give or take, since those original women went missing, as well as his girlfriend from California. 55 years, and they still haven't been found. I hate to say it, but will they ever? Right. It's been a long time. So it's awful. He was an awful man. And doing this research, it just was one thing after another. I was like, when does this stop? And he did it in such quick succession too. And part of this, he was still married and had children. How active in their lives he was, it's hard to say, but shit. Right. And where are his kids now? What are his kids up to? Right. I hope they are functioning as normally in society as they possibly can, and I, I hope they're doing okay. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, they didn't have him for very long, mm. which maybe is a good is definitely a good thing. And they're probably in their late fifties, sixties now. So hopefully they lived an okay life, but that's hard. And the poor woman, um, his wife too, you know, I hope she turned out okay. She was interviewed in one of the articles I read, so she's still around or at least was at the time of the article and she seemed like she was doing okay but how okay can you be when that's someone you thought you loved or whatever right it's hard so yeah guys that is the terrible terrible case of massachusetts serial killer tony costa definitely per usual guys let us know what you think of this case you guys have been coming through so hard with the comments lately love it We've been getting a ton. But definitely tell us, do you guys think that maybe he had more victims than what we talked about? What do you think about the woman who died in the bathtub? Do you think that's suspicious? Just let us know what you think because there's a lot to speculate on here and just a lot to talk about. So you can find us on our Instagram and Twitter, which is truecrimeany. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at truecrimeany at gmail.com. You could also go to our website, truecrimene.com. We have a handy dandy submission tool where you can send us questions, comments, thoughts about this case, other cases that we've covered. And perhaps if you send us a suggestion, if you leave your name and we end up covering the case that you suggest for us to do an episode on, you will get a shout out just like the one at the top of this episode. Thank you again, Courtney G. Thanks, Courtney. If you want to be anonymous, we have that as an option as well. You will be loved in our hearts for reaching out to us. You're loved in our hearts for being here and listening. Thank you. We love you so much. We appreciate you. And if you love us back, you can go to Spotify and give us a star review, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a star and written review if you so choose. And we appreciate you guys so much, even for just comprehending the words I just said and knowing that you have the ability to do that. So thank you. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. 